From the newsroom of Bridge Detroit and produced by WDET, Detroit's public radio station, this is What Had Happened Was. A look at how America's blackest city blew 70 years of black representation in Congress. I'm your host, Ashley Stevenson. When Shri Tanadar takes the oath to become the next congressman from Detroit in January 2023, the city will actually lose Black representation in Washington for the first time since 1955. It will gain an immigrant who won the city's support in his bid for governor in 2018 and who moved to Detroit shortly after and easily won a seat in the state legislature. Tanadar says that he found a home in Detroit and a home amongst Detroiters. But how will he represent a population whose life experiences are so different from his own? How will he show Detroiters that he understands our interests? How will Shri prove that he can really be our champion? Tanadar tells Bridge Detroit's Malachi Barrett that what he hears from Detroiters is that we want results. So in the primary, there were several uh, qualified black candidates who, who could have been the nominee. And I think, you know, a certain number of voters would have been happy with that. Um, and I want to know, you know, for you, you, you must have at some point had to kind of reconcile with the idea that your victory would mean ending this 70 year uh, run of black representation for Detroit. And I'm not judging you for that. I, I just want to know, you know, how did you come to terms with that? It's something you must have decided on. Uh, look, this uh, seat belongs to the people of the 13th district. Uh, people make the decisions you give people the choices, um, and in a democratic process, you expect people to vote. Uh, and I, I am passionate about uh, helping others. You know, I came here with nothing. I came to the United States with nothing. And this country has given me so much. Uh, I was able to achieve my American dream. But as I travel across when I was running for governor, when I traveled across, especially in urban areas, I saw, uh, you know, young people had no hope. I saw that access to that American dream uh, was uh, not achievable uh, for many people. And I felt it is my duty to give back to this great country of ours that has given me so much. So my focus wasn't uh, about that. My focus was more about how can I give back? How can I make other people's lives better? And that was my motivation to enter into this race. Mm -hmm. Did you study the the history of this, uh, you know, the the figures who had been uh, contributing toward this 70-year history of of representation, I was learning earlier about uh, Charles Diggs, who, you know, was the first uh, black member of Congress from Michigan uh, and, you know, from Detroit. He's a founding member of the uh, the Black Caucus, um, first chairman. Um, so, you know, positions like that, the, the ability of, of people like that to create institutions that advocate on behalf of the black community to, to raise issues in a way that they have direct experience to. I mean, it's a, it's been a powerful thing throughout time. And I'm wondering if you you know, looked back at that history at all and, you know, came to terms with understanding what that meant? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. You know, I have a great respect for uh, uh, the late uh, Congressman uh, John Conyers. Uh, you know, he introduced uh, H.R. 40 
in every Congress. And, uh, you know, uh, he is civil rights legend. Uh, absolutely. Uh, Charles Diggs, uh, Congressman, uh, you know, Barbara Rose Collins, uh, uh, Congresswoman Kilpatrick. Yes, yes, this has a rich uh, a history uh, of uh, great men and women who have served uh, the, um, uh, you know, the Detroit region. But this district has changed now. This district is very, very diverse. Uh, we have not only a city of Detroit, but we have the downriver communities. Um, uh, Detroit has changed. Um, at one time, Detroit had uh, 1.9 million people lived in this city. Today, we have uh, 600,000 uh, people live here. Just in the last 10 years, uh, according to the census numbers, we have lost 100,000 people uh, from the city of Detroit. So one in uh, seven people we lost in the last 10 years. So this is a diverse district. And uh, in the gubernatorial uh, race, uh, African-Americans overwhelmingly supported my candidacy over two other candidates. In 2020, I ran for state rep uh, position in the Detroit's third house district, uh, which is a 90% African-American district. And I won that district. More African-Americans voted for me than any other candidate. So, uh, so certainly... Uh, People uh, trust me in, uh, you know, bringing legislation that will help and improve people's lives. And in Michigan House, um, I worked with uh, Representative Cynthia A. Johnson, a uh, African-American lawmaker, and uh, co-sponsored two resolutions for uh, um, reparations. Uh, we created or asked for a fund to be created uh, to the tune of $1.2 billion <clears throat> that will help um, black-owned businesses, uh, help entrepreneurs, black um, entrepreneurs. So, you know, and I will be working with uh, Sheila Jackson, Congresswoman Sheila Jackson, who is uh, taken over uh, the reparation resolution bills uh, and I want to work with uh, a number of other congressional Black Caucus members in uh, not only uh, sponsoring and introducing the resolution about and bills about reparations, but, you know, we got to go beyond just studying the reparation issue. We need to, at some point, really make something happen. We need to really have... Uh, a law signed by the president that, uh, you know, addresses this issue. And that's what I will be working with the Congressional Black Caucus members uh, to our neighborhoods. Hmm. To your point on the impact of redistricting and, and changing the way that this this congressional district looks now, and, you know, it includes downriver, it includes some areas outside of Detroit that weren't previously part of it. I, I think, you know, a Detroiter might hear that and, and feel some concern that Detroit is not the priority for this member of Congress, that there are 
obviously there's obligations to other communities, right? I mean, you have to, you have to represent the district as a whole when you're in that seat. But is that a concern that you've heard? And, and how, how do you address it? The idea that Detroit is losing some of its, uh, you know, its share of the influence there. And there are other communities now that are going to have to be uh, paid, paid more attention to perhaps. Well, as the congressperson uh, for the 13th district, my responsibility is every person that lives in 13th district, whether that person lives in the city of Detroit or in downriver communities. Uh, Detroit at one time was able to support uh, two congressional candidates. But we have lost population over the years substantially. Uh, we've come f- uh, from 1.9 million people to uh, what about 600,000 people. Uh, so this city cannot even sustain or support one congressional district. Each congressional district is about 750,000 people. So uh, clearly, uh, you know, the city uh, and the population of the city does not support one uh, congressional. Uh, but that really, the people in downriver often feel the other way around. They feel that most of the candidates come from city of Detroit, and they always talk about city of Detroit, and uh, is downriver uh, an afterthought, a sec, you know. Uh, so there is concern on both sides. And uh, the best thing to do would be is to address issues of uh, both communities. So you had moved here before running for state legislature in 2020, before that you had lived in Ann Arbor. And I'm curious how living in Detroit has impacted your perception of the city and the people. And, and what that experience has been like for you um, over the last, uh, you know, two years or so that you've lived in Detroit? I love Detroit. You know, I, I've never found the kind of warmth and community feeling uh, anywhere else in America. You know, I immigrated to United States uh, in 1979, uh, 43 years ago. And uh, I have lived in many different states, many different cities. Uh, but the warmth, uh, the welcome that I received in Detroit was very, very unusual. And, you know, when I ran for governor in uh, 2018, uh, I traveled a lot in uh, Detroit uh, I spent a lot of time in Detroit, even though I did not live in Detroit then. And I was really, uh, f- felt the warmth, almost like for the first time in America, I found a home or a place I can call home. Having left my home where I grew up in my childhood home in India and having come here for the first time, I felt welcomed at home. I, first time I felt the warmth uh, the peop- of the people. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that time I was not even living in Detroit. And in that election, I, had not, I didn't know what to expect, what kind of support I would get uh, for the governor. I didn't look, look like the, re- the rest of the people. I didn't speak like I sounded like an immigrant, someone who came uh, to this country from somewhere else. And yet, uh, you know, I got more votes in uh, 
Detroit, uh, then my opponents did. You know, I won the city of Detroit in the gubernatorial primary. And that was a total surprise. I didn't really expect that, uh, that it would happen, that the people of Detroit would support me. And that kind of created a warmth, a bond. And everywhere I went in Detroit, uh, I was received very warmly. And it almost felt like many uh, people I met, uh, many women I met, I felt like I was meeting my my own mother. Uh, Same kind of value system, you know, raising their children, giving that value system to their children. The same kind of sacrifices that I saw in the women in Detroit that my mother had sacrificed to raise us so far away, you know. Uh, So I really got fond of it, Detroit and city. And when I lost that uh, gubernatorial election and I didn't want it to go back to the business world and restart businesses because I've been there, done that, and that's not what I want to do rest of my life. So I decided to move to Detroit. And... I enjoy it. You know, it's, it's a, the community feeling in Detroit is just amazing. It's an unusual. I live in Palmer Woods and Palmer Woods has this history. Uh, it is a very mixed neighborhood. Um, a lot of art, you know, uh, Detroit has the music and the art, uh, very unique uh, music, very unique art. And in Palmer Woods, we do a lot of music concerts, home music concerts. Uh, I offer my home for music concerts. Sometimes we have a concert in the house. Sometimes we have it in the backyard. Uh, So there is a lot of art. Uh, We have home tours. Um, You know, during Christmas time, we have home tours. Uh, So there is a, a sense of community. We have Friday evening where we get together in some people's homes and we have conversation, we bring food, uh, you know. And it's that that warm feeling, the community feeling. And I, I, I feel the same when I go into the neighborhoods. When I, uh, just the other day, I was at uh, Russell uh, Woods uh, Park uh, listening to jazz music, a free concert where there were 500, maybe 600 people there. And just meeting people, conversing, uh, that feeling of uh, friendship and the feeling of family uh, is very, very unusual. Uh, you know, I've lived in different states, different cities, and never seen uh, that kind of warmth in people. I, I was just enjoyed people, meeting people. I was there like for almost four hours. And uh, many people ask, uh, where is your entourage? And I was by myself walking around. Uh, and I said, no, I just stopped by uh, here, uh, listening to the music and meeting people. And very quickly it got dark. And lots of people walked up to me and they said, what are you doing in the hood, Sri? And I said, look, <laughs> this is kind of a place I grew up you know this is home for me and uh, and and we had more conversations and I talked about uh, to people about um, um, you know issues and they talked about uh, public safety and 
how they have car chases, police chasing things. Then there are uh, helicopters overhead and they're worried about uh, raising their children, uh, you know, and uh, in a safe environment. So we talked, uh, we talked about that. And, uh, you know, I always hear about this in the media that, you know, Shri's not black. And I, but, you know, the people that I talk to, they never talk about me not being African-American. So I thought maybe I'll start asking people. Uh, So I started asking uh, people, uh, what do you think about me not being African-American? Does that bother you? Does that matter uh, as I am looking to represent uh, uh, this city um, in Congress? And people were like, fix the problems, Sri. Fix the problems. We need better schools. You know, we need to feel safe in our homes. You know, we need access to money to fix our homes. You know, we have roof issues and we don't have money to fix the sidewalk, whatever. The sidewalks are, uh, people are tripping and it's a tripping hazard. We don't have transportation to go to the doctor's. And so on and on. And of course, the cost, uh, the inflation and the cost of a gallon of milk and people concern about that. Uh, So nowhere did I hear issue about me not being African-American. With all due respect, you've talked about this a few times that uh, it hasn't really come up on the campaign trail that that people have not raised your, your race as an issue. Personally, I, I just find that a little hard to believe. <laughs> you're, you're saying that no one has ever uh, suggested that perhaps you not being black is, is something they should talk about with you or, or you know, that, that it just hasn't been a conversation you've had with people? That's not a conversation that I've had, although it comes up every time I talk to media. Hmm. So the media has often talked about it and that has become a central theme in reporting about uh, this race, but when I talk to people, that's never an issue. It's more about uh, who can uh, improve our lives, who can make things better for us. And uh, that's where uh, people are really focused on. Mm. I I mean, I do understand the sentiment. I do understand why would somebody be concerned about that. Uh, And, you know, in my mind, it's not a one congressional seat issue. This is more of a global issue. Uh, We need to see proper representation in all walks of life, Uh, whether it is on U.S. Supreme Court, whether it is state Supreme Court, uh, whether it is corporate boardrooms, uh, CEO positions, uh, across uh, uh, every walk of life, we need to see proper representation And that needs to happen in a natural, normal way uh, if we have a fair system. And that's what we need to strive for is a system that's fair, where uh, every black or brown child would feel that any seat, every seat in Congress can be his or hers uh, if they work hard for it. Mm -hmm. Do you have an example of a time, um, you know, perhaps as you've been crafting your, your policy uh, agenda on this campaign or perhaps from your time in the legislature where uh, 
you know, a constituent concern, a, a you know, communication from the community has uh, brought something to your attention and then you've kind of like led the led the way on taking some action toward that issue? Do you have any examples of that? Yes, absolutely. Um, you know, uh, when I was uh, representing that, or currently I do represent the third district in the Michigan House, and uh, there was a concern about... Uh, um, the conditions of uh, our school buildings, uh, you know, Pershing High School, for example, uh, I walked with the principal through that high school and I saw water on the gym floor. I saw they had, didn't had resources, whether it is music uh, lab or science lab, they didn't have the resources. Uh, the HVAC systems aren't working. Um, they don't have enough counselors uh, whether it is, uh, you know, career counseling or psychological counseling. Uh, I served on the appropriations committees. <clears throat> and I brought, uh, you know, with the governor's help and in partnership with the governor, we had two of the biggest uh, education budgets in the last two years that I served. In fact, the biggest uh, Michigan budgets that we had, uh, I served on the appropriations committees, including achieving per pupil equity for the first time, uh, bringing state and federal dollars uh, to repair uh, the schools. And actually, we have enough money now to rebuild five schools in the Detroit area, including that high school, Pershing High School. Um, yeah, so we. I also served on the health and human services uh, uh, appropriations, and I met a grandma who told me that uh, her grandson is uh, being put up in the emergency room for last twenty five days because there is no bed available for psychiatric care. And uh, I worked with. Um, uh, Representative Mary White, who is the chairperson of uh, Health and Human Services. And uh, we were able to allocate a lot of funds uh, for uh, renovating, building uh, a new psychiatric hospital. Uh, we have allocated about $650 million because uh, since Governor Engler's time, uh, mental health services have been cut in the state of Michigan, and those have not been restored and when I've heard concerns from parents and grandparents about how um, mental health uh, beds are not available, services not available, uh, we uh, put about $250 million to hire uh, mental health counselors in high schools. You know, I uh, grew up uh, with hardship. And, uh, you know, when I went to college and um, I didn't have transportation, um, my family struggled. And my financial success in later years uh, did not change me. Who I was was who, how I lived my life in the first 18, 20, 25 years, much before my success. My success only happened uh, in later stages when I was in 40 years old and 50 year old. So the core of me is the struggle. 
is the financial struggle, is the, um, you know, taking care of my mom, her health, taking care of my siblings, health care, their education. Uh, and and it didn't change me. The late, later stage, the financial success that I achieved uh, did not change me who I was. My core did not change. And I never really forgot my roots. Uh, it's almost like it happened yesterday. And when I would go back to visit my mom, uh, she didn't want it to change her surrounding. So her ha- home uh, remained the same. It wasn't modernized. It wasn't, you know, she didn't want it to. She didn't want it to change her life. Uh, and uh, me and my uh, children would go visit her, spend time with her, and we would be just as comfortable uh, living there, being with her, uh, sitting on the floor, uh, eating things, you know. Uh, it, it, you know, and her house, uh, her roof would still leak, and uh, we would uh, just feel comfortable and at home. Even my children who grew up in U.S., uh, got used to that. Uh, we, we would suddenly switch uh, to uh, living there. Um, and uh, so I think after a certain time, uh, the financial success doesn't really matter. It doesn't really change you. I am who I am. And I understand those struggles uh, like it happened yesterday. Hmm. I think it, what matters is what's in my heart. Uh, what matters is that... Uh, I want to help people. Uh, what matters is that uh, I struggled through and I suffered and I understand uh, the financial hardship, putting food on the table, making hard choices. Today, even one in four voters are still struggling to, uh, when they are in the grocery store, is what to buy and what not to buy. Where are they going to use their limited resources one in four people are still struggling with their grocery bills, with uh, uh, not having enough uh, money uh, to take care of their family. Uh, they're struggling with prescription uh, drug costs. Uh, so they're struggling with uh, auto insurance, buying auto insurance, keeping up with their car repairs. Uh, you know, four in 10 people today don't have, if they have a financial emergency that required a thousand or two thousand dollars, people don't have that kind of money sitting around. Uh, so uh, while, you know, we have six billionaires who have more than half of the uh, country's wealth, uh, there are, there are, uh, you know, people, uh, that are struggling with uh, just taking care of their family. Uh, and uh, it is, um, you know, my duty to help those people. It is my, you know, we need to close this financial gap. We need to create opportunities. Uh, uh, in urban areas, we need to give young people the skills they need to do, do good paying jobs. We need to provide the counseling young people need to close this uh, school-to-prison pipeline, we need to reform our criminal justice system. You know, we are a country that puts more uh, people, um, uh, incarcerate more people than any other country. We need to take care of health care. We need universal health care. We need universal uh, pre-K, uh, uh, kindergarten. Uh, there is a lot that needs to be done to bring equity. Uh, close this wealth gap. And uh, my unique background 
uh, having grown up uh, in poverty, uh, my unique background of having created jobs, understand both uh, the uh, creating jobs, starting businesses, entrepreneurships, uh, owning small businesses, uh, and uh, you know struggling uh, in financial uh, difficulties. All of that puts me in a unique position. And that's why I decided to give up my business career. It was a very lucrative business that I gave up, uh, took some money, spent it and gave it to all of my employees and decided to spend rest of my life in public service because I think uh, this is time for me to give back. Uh, I'm blessed. My family's blessed. But uh, uh, this is not the time to accumulate wealth, but this is a time for me to go uh, and service uh, of the people. Mm-hmm. What have you done to to build some support among black leadership in Detroit? And is that important to you? Um, what what has that experience been like? Uh, it is very important to me that I have a good relationship with uh, uh, the mayors of um, every city, municipality. I have 19 uh, municipalities that I need to have good relationship with the elected officials. And uh, I intend to do that. I have been visiting uh, city governments, talking with mayors, uh, you know, talking about issues, infrastructure issues, talking about their need for federal dollars. Um, I'm I'm, uh, building relationships, getting to know people. Um, And, you know, I need to earn the trust not of only of the elected officials and the so-called elites uh, in the community, but, you know, I need to do good work and uh, earn the trust of uh, people uh, of the district. Uh, you know, I intend to bring uh, lawmakers to my district and show them the importance of uh, uh, Detroit and the importance of downriver communities Um, and the issues that are faced. Uh, Well, you know, I have lived in this country for 43 years. Uh, I bring uh, government experience. I bring experience of lifetime of experience. I, my children were four and eight years old and I lost their mother, my first wife, to mental health issues. Uh, And I raised my boys as a single father until I got, uh, after, until I got remarried again. Uh, so I understand the struggles of everyday people. And, uh, you know, that's my passion to help people. And that's why I'm doing this. I look at this uh, as a, an honor. Uh, but more importantly, I look at this as a responsibility. Uh, you know, a responsibility to serve and responsibility to make uh, a difference in people's lives. And uh, that's what I want to be fighting for. And that's what I will be working. And that's what I want to do rest of my life. Uh, just devote to public service and give back uh, because this is still the greatest country in the world. I love America. I love this, our country. And uh, I am just so grateful to be part of the United States of America. The What Had Happened Was podcast is produced by Bridge Detroit in conjunction with 1019 WDET, Detroit's NPR station. The series was created by Stephen Henderson and hosted by Ashley Stevenson. 
Interviews were conducted by Catherine Kelly, Orlando Bailey, Malachi Barrett, and Stephen Henderson of Bridge Detroit. The executive producer and interview editor for the series is Stephen Henderson. Recorded by Connor Anderson. Audio engineering for the series and music created by Sam Bobian.